coming off the success of their licensed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle merchandising line, Playmates Toys decided that they wanted to start their own franchise. Because if you can make money and cut out the middleman, why not? Noticing the success of Sonic the Hedgehog, they decided to lay the foundation down with a video game and go from there. So, word gets out that they're looking for an artist with a concept that they can sell, and what drops onto their desk is a simple sketch of an interesting earthworm. The sketch, of course, would become the foundation of the Earthworm Gem series, and today, we're going to learn all about it. So stick around and join us as we learn all about this groovy invertebrate on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and or good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 113th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we tell you the story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we're looking back at Earthworm Jim, originally released for the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo Entertainment System in October of 1994. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who really likes long, gross, slimy things. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's with you liking all those squirmy wormies? They're good bait. Yes, they're very good bait. They're they're the top. They're the master bait, if you would. Oh, see, you must know that being a master baiter. <laughs> oh, got him! Got him! <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! What you been playing this week? Well, Dave, this week has seen some satisfactory mm-hmm. some rocket league mm-hmm. some runescape mm-hmm. i don't think there's anything else mm-hmm. how about yourself i had some rocket league and i took my switch with me i was traveling last week didn't put much thought into it, and the cartridge inside of it was Breath of the Wild, so I played a few hours of Breath of the Wild doing nothing to kill time. Uh, that's Good about choice it. right there. That's yeah, I know. When I went on my trip, I also forgot the cartridges and had Breath of the Wild in there, so that's what I played. Yeah, I, I, I threw my Switch in my bag like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have time to do anything, but here you go. And um, that was that. So, yeah. Earthworm Jim. You know Earthworm Jim? Yes, I do. Yeah, we played this one as kids. I played it as a kid. Then you would have also played it as a kid when you got old enough to play it. Yep, I sure have played this one. Yeah. It's a weird game. I like it. I agree. It was very interesting. It's, uh... It's a weird one, and it kind of, 
goes way back. You know, it started, it's an invention of Playmate Toys. Now, Playmate Toys was founded in Hong Kong in 1966. They got their start manufacturing dolls for other companies. Now, about 1975, they started making their own line of preschool toys. It's probably what they're really well known for is Playmates Preschool Toys. And that led them to open an American subsidiary in 1977. Now, they pretty much did the dolls and the preschool toys. They weren't a huge company. They weren't really like the Mattels or anything in the world. Um, But that changed. Their first really genuinely successful toy came about in 1986. It was called Cricket. Now, Cricket was an electronic robot doll that talked to you, and it did so by means of a tape player that was built inside of the Cricket. Now, Cricket was this whole slew of different dolls, different books that went with the doll. It was kind of this whole thing in the mid-'80s. Um, and, and with that, Playmate got some, you know, Playmate became kind of popular. So that was like the original, like one of the start of that whole talking doll thing. It was. It was the popular one. I think the one most people are going to know nowadays is like the Teddy Ruxpin dolls. Uh, that wasn't the cricket, but that's probably one of the best examples I could come up with of a talking electronic robot that had a tape player, you know, that had that inside. But yeah, cricket, cricket was one of those, one of those creepy talking dolls. So, wow. Yeah. Yep. And it was commercially successful, so Playmate Playmate made a name for themselves. And by making a name for themselves, this led them to be able to strike a deal to manufacture the toys for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figurines that, well, toys, period, that were produced alongside the super popular TV show in the late 80s. Now... Rob, you and I did an episode on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was for our 100th episode, wasn't it? Uh, I don't remember the exact count. Maybe but. it was 104. It was one, I think it was 104 because we did it for our two. We did it for an anniversary, and I think it was a two-year anniversary. In any case, Rob and I did an episode on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles recently. I believe you can go back eight, two months and look at it. And we talked in it all about the history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So if you want to learn more about the guys who created Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and where it came from and and how that translated into video games, of which we're fans, Turtles in Time was a game that Rob and I used to play together a lot, you can do so by going to our website, www.memorycardlane.com, and check out that old episode. So here we are. You know, it's the late 80s, and, and Playmates are making Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figurines, and... So they sit and they go, we like money, like every other company known to man, right? Money, money, money. Mm, Yes, money, quite. Mm, Mm, Yes. Yeah, and in order to promote, in order to print money, they decided that they wanted to start their own franchise. Now, the late 80s, early 90s, this is also when there are other things going on. In particular, Sonic the Hedgehog, which was 9091 was super popular and it was a phenomenon right so the teenage mutant ninja turtle started out as a cartoon and turned into video games and merchandise and then playmate saw sonic the hedgehog which was the opposite which was a video game that was then turned into a cartoon and merchandise and playmates decided hey 
this is what we want to do. So we're going to make a video game and it's going to form the basis of a franchise that's going to cascade out into merchandising and cartoons and all that jazz. Okay. So they reach out to a guy named Dave Perry. Dave Perry is a Northern Irish video game developer. Like many other developers that we talk about from this time period, he began writing video games young. He was about 15 when it became a serious hobby to him. And his first game that he can recall was a driving game. It was basically, as he described it, you were a black blob avoiding other black blobs. Now, he made it. He wrote the game. He sent it into a computer hobby programming magazine, and they printed it. So he sent them more games. They sent him back a check for 450 pounds for his efforts. It's a lot of money when you're 15, 16 years old. So he began to write more games and send them in, and it was exchange. Check, games, check, games. And this continued until he was eventually offered a job as an apprentice programmer uh, in order to learn more advanced programming. This, oh. wasn't, this didn't last long. Yeah, right. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? That's that's a pretty cool origin story, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, could didn't really need to be an apprentice if he was already making stuff. Like, could have been like a full on. Well, there's there's a there's a difference between blobs avoiding blobs, bleeding way into you know what he did next. Which, when he was seventeen, he moved to London. He took jobs with companies like Microgen and Probe Software, doing ports or conversions of popular games. Uh, for instance, he converted the, he was on the team that converted the NES version of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles over to the ZX Spectrum. In 1981, he moved, or 1991, we're not going back in time. He's not Doctor Who. He's not a time traveler. Uh, in 1991, he moved to the United States and he took a job with Virgin Games. And at Virgin Games, he worked on games like Cool Spot. Uh, Aladdin. He worked on the Sega City version of the Terminator. Um, he worked on a bunch of different version games. So the first title was one that was so obscure. I thought they were all going to be that way, but you know, he kind of kind of reeled it in right in the end there. Cool spots obscure. It, for me. Okay. Well, uh, I don't know. I guess we'll have to do an episode on it. We did. Nope. Guess I'll have to go listen to that episode. If on our cu- website. If you're curious about that, go back to the... Ep- I may not have talked about it. I think I did, though. Go back to the episode on corporate video games because Cool Spot was a 7-Up-themed platform. Oh, you know what? Yep. <clears throat> the it, name doesn't ring a bell, but the, the concept does. It, it. I don't remember if we talked about it. I know we talked about Yonoid, and the two came out at about the same time. Yonoid, of course, was the pizza... Hut Pizza Noid one and Cool Spot was the Seven Up guy one. So, yep, yep, yep. So Dave Perry, playmates reach out. They want to give him money to work on a video game, and he takes that money and he forms Shiny Entertainment, which was named after the REM song. So fucking nineties. Uh, Shiny Happy People. Mm. Actually, just so, listening to REM today. <laughs> nice. I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to R.E.M., to be honest with you. I, I, I genuinely don't know. So Shiny Entertainment puts out feelers that they're looking to make a new video game franchise. And 
one of the people who responds uh, that they reach out to or reach out to them, one or the other, was a guy named Douglas Tenable. Tenable? Tenable? I should have looked that up. You know how I butcher names. We're going to roll with Doug. Now, Doug was relatively new to this industry. He started out working as an animator on a cartoon called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, the animated series. Okay, that sounds epic as hell. I used to dig that one a whole lot. I, I really dig that one. It, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, cartoons were so awesome. I don't know what it was, and it's probably a lot of nostalgia, but I think cartoons in the like 80s and 90s were phenomenal. And I, I don't know. There's no, some... I can understand that, because there are even cartoons that like I watched from when I was young, that I'm like, wow, this is awesome, but stuff now is like, wow, this sucks. But like even the stuff from the 80s I did enjoy, like, you know, Thundercats. Yeah. That was a pretty cool last show. Fucking Thundercats was great. And, and there's good cartoons for now. Speaking of cartoons, have you watched, um, and it's not really cartoon, but it's animated, the Cyberpunk Edge Runner on Netflix? No can do. Did not. You should. So. Okay. Okay. Moving on. So Doug works on Killer Tomatoes. He also penned graphic novels on the side. He was a proper cartoonist. Um, and he quickly transitioned over to video game animation. He worked, for instance, on Jurassic Park for the Sega Genesis, and he worked on the Jungle Book video game, which came out for Sega and Super Nintendo. So he he transitions from cartoon animation to video game animation. And Doug brings a simple sketch of an earthworm over to Shiny Entertainment and throws his concept out. And there was just something about his style and his concept that Dave Perry and the shiny team loved. So they ran with it. So shiny entertainment buys the rights to earthworm Jim from Doug and he hires Doug to work alongside it with them. So 10 April works on the general game design, the level design, and actually he ends up becoming the voice of earthworm Jim. Um, Dave Perry and his team on the other hand, they uh, they come up with the other characters, they come up with the game mechanics, and obviously they program the game. They are the game programmers, after all. And to do so, they use a custom programming language. Uh, it allowed them, what was it called? A custom heterogeneous programming language. In layman's terms, is basically it allowed them to make the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo versions at the same time. Um, in fact, some of the levels were coded exactly like one time and used in both because of the way the language worked. Others had to be converted through the process. Um, so they did. So they worked on this game. And I mean, there's not much about the development. They, they, they had an idea. They made it. They ran with it. And they released it for both the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis in October of 1994. Now... We don't spend a lot of time on the games, um, in my opinion. I think we spend a lot more time on the development than we do on the game itself. Is that a fair statement, Rob? Uh, yeah, Dave, I would definitely say that that's a fair assessment. But I think in this case, what makes Earthworm Jim so special and why we're talking about it today and 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 everything is the game itself it's it's a very unique game and it spawns didn't really spawn but it laid the foundation for a bunch of really interesting video game characters 
because of its art style and everything. So we're going to take some time today. And we're going to actually talk about the game. Now, Earthworm Jim is a run and gun platform game is the best way to put it. That's it. It's a run and, run and gun platform game. That's it. We're done. We talked about the game, Rob. Yep. Sounds about right. Okay, let's move on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so look. So to understand Earthworm Jim, we have to talk about what, you know, made it special, and that's his personality, right? So the plot goes that for most of his life, Jim was just a generic earthworm engaging in normal worm activities, such as digging in dirt, crawling, fleeing from hungry birds, and so on and so forth, until one day fate should happen to smile upon him and his life was changed forever. A fearsome bounty hunter named Psycho was en route to deliver the ultra-high-tech indestructible super space cyber suit to Queen Slug for a butt, but got in a confrontation with another spaceship and lost the super suit out of an airlock. Now that suit fell to Earth. It lands on a farm somewhere in the southern United States. While fleeing from a flock of hungry crows, Jim took refuge in the mysterious suit. The suit's powerful atomic particles affected Jim's wormy flesh and caused him to grow and evolve at a fantastic rate. Upon discovering his newfound powers granted by the suit, he overhears Psycho talking to Queen Slug for a butt and becomes interested in meeting the Queen's twin sister, Princess What's-Her-Name. Now, to battle evildoers, Jim primarily relies on his super suit, which grants him super strength, super durability, and the ability to do many things a worm could not normally do due to lack of limbs. His main weapon is a rapid-fire plasma blaster. Many of his signature abilities are not due to the super suit itself, but due to his own long, stretchy worm body. For instance, he can use himself as a whip to attack enemies at close range. He can use himself as a lasso to grab onto small edges and swing off them. He's even known to use his body as a propeller to slow down his fall. And while he's quite vulnerable and weak, um, if separated from the suit, he still has access to various abilities that a regular earthworm would not have. The super suit, like, modifies his genetics. You know, he can coil himself into a spring and jump. And that's pretty much it. You know, he goes through the game. He has to go through levels, evade enemies, bosses who want the suit back. And the game basically plays out with him succeeding in his quest of meeting Princess What's-Her-Name. But with that being said, spoiler alert, sorry guys, this game is uh, 20-some years old. She's crushed by a cow. The same cow that gets launched at the beginning of the game. She's crushed by the cow at the end of the game. That's the humor of Earthworm Jim. The poetic justice. <laughs> now, look, I thought, you know, so that's the basis of the game. And, and it's weird and it's quirky. And I, I wanted to kind of emphasize that by talking a little bit about the game, the levels, the bosses, so on and so forth. So you start out in a you start out in a level called New Junk City. It's basically a space junkyard. At the end of it, you fight this junkyard rednecky dude named Chuck. Very fitting. The second level is called What the Heck. It's a fiery planet, a.k.a. Hell. No, not even a joke. And the person who runs Hell in this game is Evil the Cat. Kind of fun. It's a good name. Yep. 
there's a level called Down the Tubes. It's an underwater planet, kind of designed like hamster tubes. Actually, they are hamster tubes because there's a hamster that you're that's your friend that you need to defeat the enemies that are evil kittens from Evil the Cat. And a lot of these levels are two-parters. Down the tube second part is called Tube Race. Basically, it's an underwater submarine race where you have to race race an enemy and dodge things. And if you get hit too many times, your, your submarine glass cracks and you die because you're a worm. You can't survive underwater. And if you're lucky enough to get to the end of the tube race, you get to go up against Bob the Killer Goldfish. Now, this leads way to a level called Snot a Problem. I fucking hated Snot a Problem. Snot a Problem is a bungee jump- jumping level. And um, in case it wasn't clear, you're bungee jumping off strings of snot. <laughs> this game was gross in hindsight. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. Uh, the boss at the end of Snot a Problem is called Major Mucus. Now, this leads way to level five. Now... This is always level five. In the original version of the game, it is the fifth level, but there are other versions of the game that kind of plug in secret levels or other levels, and no matter what, level five is always level five. And level five is a gigantic space lab that's run by Professor Monkey for a Head, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a professor that has a monkey head. That's a cool name. It is a very cool name. And the boss he throws at the end is Robot Chicken. I think this is before the the show Robot Chicken. So you fight a robot oh, chicken. Okay, I was gonna say, did they have yeah. to pay for that? No, this is before there was a robot. This is literally a robot chicken. There, I there. These are all the levels I skipped around. I mean, I didn't skip around yet, but now I'm skipping around. So there's a level called Pete's Sake. Most people hate the level. You meet Peter Puppy, who's an immortal dog, and you have to escort him through the level. He may be an immortal, but he can still get hurt. You can get hurt, but you can't die, basically. I think he's immortal. Anyway, it's an escort level. It sucks. And then the level where you have to fight the queen. Queen, what's her slug? Slug for a butt. Queen slug for a butt. Uh, And her level is called Buttville. What else would it be? That's a great name as well. I know. And and you you have to fight through the village of Buttville. And then you have to go up against Queen Slug for a Butt herself in Buttville. And if you if you're lucky enough to lucky enough to beat Queen Slug for a butt, you get to meet Princess What's Her Name, and she's crushed by a cow. It's a weird game, man. Yeah, no, it is. But it had a lot of personality where other games didn't. You know, this was created in the early mid nineties, ninety four, right? We we said at the top that Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic the Hedgehog, was a game, and it was one of the examples, right? Right. And the thing of it is, is like if you if you think about it, Sonic the Hedgehog as a video game didn't have a whole lot of personality behind it. That make does that make sense? Yeah, I, I I think I get what you're saying. I mean, Sonic didn't really talk in the first game or the second game. Sonic didn't really get a personality until really the cartoons, which would have been 93 and 94, which is right when this was being made. And then, of course, as time went on, Sonic, you know, got a personality. I mean, but realistically, the same can be said for Mario. Think about Mario 1, Mario 2. 
we didn't get personality from the games itself. We got personality from the Super Mario Brother animated series, the Super Mario Brother Super Show. Like, there's no personality to Mario Mario One. Um, I, 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 you, you jump up and down, and sometimes you shoot fireballs. What's not personable uh, about that? Uh, okay, well, maybe, but I, but my, my, my contention, my point, and what I think why earthworm gym and it's not a popular game obviously but i think it's a special one for a lot of people is because it was one of the earliest games where it was a, a, a character like the main character had it had personality now in time we got a lot of those right we got the bubsies of the world and we got the crash bandicoots of the world and i i know there's what else spyro you know, but th- we got personality in those games because technology and the concepts had went on. But here at this time, we didn't have a lot of that. I mean, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had personality because we knew them as a cartoon first. So that's a bad comparison. But I'd say if you compare apples to apples when it comes to video game to video game, that Earthworm Jim had way more, way more of a, a style and personality than than any of the others did at the time. And so it was special to a lot of people. You know, it was fun. It was weird. I would have been ninety four ten at the time. What what ten year old kid doesn't like snot and buttville? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. No, I agree with you on that one. And now we're here, and, and what thirty eight year old kid doesn't like snot and buttville? <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> You got that right. It doesn't end. <laughs> okay, I'll pass on the snot because snot is gross, but Buttville is uh, Buttville's kind of funny. Also, like looking back to this game, I get nightmares about some of it, like the freaking hamster tubes and the underwater level. And uh, this game, this game was. I know I beat it. I remember beating it as a kid, but it was hard. I guess not overly so because I beat it. If it was overly hard, I would never beat it. You know, we've talked about games where that's the case. Do you remember beating it at all? I honestly cannot tell you that I've beaten it. I may have, but I mostly just remember small bits of gameplay of, like you said, using yourself as a lasso or uh, slowing your descent or uh, using it as whip. Remember in between each level, you had the rocket race, the spaceship, where you, yeah. the spaceship where you would race Psycho, and if you beat him, you got to go to the next level. If you didn't beat him, you had to fight him in between every single level. That was a yeah. pain in the butt. Yep, I remember that as well. Yeah. But beyond that, like I said, I don't remember the level structure or anything like that, or the bosses. So I may have, I might not have, I don't know. But I did enjoy playing it because it was gross and it was fun. It was gross and it was fun and it was voiced and it had a lot of personality and I, I don't know. It was a pretty cool game. I feel like I've said enough about it though. What, what uh, this is about that time when we decide that we want to know what other people thought about it. So Rob, what did other people think about earthworm Jim? Well, Dave, this one was a little difficult to find critic reviews. So we're just going to skip over them and jump straight into the user reviews. Nice. So with that, let's get into what the gamers think. Starting with Edzukin on Moby Games, who calls Earthworm Jim groovy. Groovy. They say that when I was a kid, I loved Earthworm Jim. Not just the game, 
at the character and even the franchise. I remember getting excited the first time I saw the television series advertised advertised on Kids WB and I recorded it every weekend. I had Earthworm Jim action figures. I even wrote a fan letter to Shiny asking if they were going to make a sequel and they wrote back those great guys. I had Earthworm Jim posters and drawings on my wall that stayed up until my mom took them down when I left for college. I guess what I'm trying to say is, you should keep in mind that this review might be a little biased due to nostalgia. However, I will, as always, try and keep it as objective as possible. The game is a standard run-and-gun platformer. The levels twist and turn, but there are never really any puzzles to figure out. So, it's all action. However, Earthworm Jim has a habit of mixing things up. Between levels, you race Psychro through space in sections called Andy Asteroids. Later, you have to pilot a fragile submarine through an underwater maze. There's one level in which you have to defeat a boss by bashing him against a wall while bungee jumping. Most of the time, however, you simply have to get from point A to point B while shooting anything that gets in the way. Aside from your normal blaster, you can also use Jim's head as a bullwhip to attack enemies or swing on hooks like Indiana Jones. If I hear anyone make the joke, use your head literally one more time, I'm going to punch the nearest convenient person. Most of the art in Earthworm Jim was hand-drawn, which is pretty rare for a game at the time. I remember Shiny using all sorts of buzzwords to describe their animation technique. Animotion, I think they called it. Basically, they would draw everything out on cells and then scan them into a computer. Everything has a very clean and exaggerated look to it. The animations are absolutely astounding. The backgrounds are also very detailed and interesting. Instead of everything looking flat, the ground and ceilings had curves and twists to them. The result is some of the best graphics on the Super Nintendo. But with that being said, not everything is good. The overall challenge in Earthworm Jim is manageable, but frustration can quickly mount in the later stages. I'd like to reiterate that there is a difference between a game that is difficult and a game that is frustrating. For the first few levels, things were as they should be. Enemies whittle away at your health, and you're often required to make precise leaps. However, the last two levels introduce pester and insta-kill enemies. Enemies who can kill you instantly are, as far as I'm concerned, a sin in game design. Except there are certain game modes that are entirely revolved around that. Environmental hazards that kill you on contact are one thing. But when an enemy can ignore your health bar and kill you outright, then the game's no longer playing by the rules. I guess in that case, for what I made the comment of, you are playing by the rules because you have a mode you have to select where it's like that. So I'll let it pass. Or just play Dark Souls. The frustration isn't helped by Jim's somewhat questionable controls. It's not that they're weird or anything. They just seem unrefined. The whip is probably the biggest issue. It's just too slow to be very useful in tense combat situations. It has quite a few frames to its animation, so the delay between pressing the button and the whip cracking is tremendous. It doesn't help that the hit detection is sometimes questionable and that the animation can be interrupted. Another problem is with Jim's propeller headcopter hover move thing. You can hover for as long as you want, 
but you have to keep tapping the B button to keep hovering. It's a pain in the butt. Why can't I just hold the button down? It isn't like I'd gain some sort of cheap advantage since I can already hover as long as I want. They continue saying, I think the game's biggest problem is that it just isn't that great of a game. Yes, it has great music and graphics. It's really charming, and the gameplay is solid enough. It's just that there isn't much to it. The gameplay itself doesn't have any personality, and is completely overshadowed by its lead character. There's no real excitement or depth. All the boss battles are all very simple and boring. There are no hugely flashly and exciting memorable encounters. It's a very standard game overall. Nothing sticks out behind the flash and pizzazz. It's just flat. They do finish the review by saying that despite its flaws, Earthroom Gym is a game that will always have a special place in their collection. A lot of creativity, talent, and love went into making this game, and it shows. The graphics are impressive, the music is top-notch, and Jim is a weird and endearing character. However, the game itself is somewhat ho-hum and can become extremely frustrating. It may be based entirely off the qualities of its character and technology, but they think Earthworm Jim is still a really good game that you should check out. I mean, I like it. I'm in agreement. If you haven't played it, give it a try and then let us know about it. Yeah. We'll tell you where later on. Yeah. So next up, Dave, for our next review, we have Akiva Techno on Moby Game, who says that the Genesis version of Earthworm Jim is the original and undoubtedly the best version of Earthworm Jim. No argument. You're just no. going to agree with it. Mm. Super Nintendo version was pretty damn good. That's all I got to say. You know, that's always a tough one because technologically the Genesis had the Super Nintendo. But, you know, our childhood was full of Super Nintendo. So I'm going to agree with that Super Nintendo was the best. Yeah, bias. Woo! Woo! So Akiba Techno says Earthroom Jim is without a doubt one of the marvels of the 16-bit era of gaming. It's a wacky ride full of imagination, clever level design, and rock-solid gameplay. The game really holds its own in a genre flooded with generic Mario and Sonic clones by offering somewhat distinctly unique in so far that it is completely insane. There is no real coherence to the way the levels play out. They simply come one after another in a cavalcade of inspired insanity. You go from an alien junkyard to hell and then underwater and into the dark underworld of an alien underlord, overlord. Earthworm Jim looks beautiful. The game is made up of totally fragmented levels, designed differently from one another. This, however, is not to the game's detriment. This freshness of level design, the unpredictability of it all, lends to its feeling fresh and exciting every single time. The levels are detailed and beautiful, with color being employed to imitate shadow, and there are even some digitized images employed to further the eye candy present. Jim himself animates fantastically, with something like over 100 frames of animation. However, Jim himself feels a little loose now and then. Occasionally, you might miss or mistime jumps from between platforms, 
or you might slip in between a wall and fall down to a previously traversed area. This isn't always a problem, but it's a problem nonetheless. That just sounds to me like they're not uh, not playing the game well enough. Yeah, I mean, the same can be said for most of us. I mean, you got a point there. I, I don't remember being very good myself. But they do finish off the review by saying Earthworm Jim is a shining example of why games in the 90s were superior to what we have now. The clever, intelligent level design that doesn't at first seem intelligent, but rather incoherent, begins to find its own sense of coherency. It's a really inspired exercise that is the sum of the genius level design, fantastic sound design, and fluid gameplay. There's very little wrong with this game. It's an exercise in pure hedonistic gameplay nirvana. That's a hell of a way to put it. Pure hedonistic gameplay nirvana. Yeah, maybe. I think... I think I can agree that it wasn't a great game. Like, it had control problems and stupid enemies and stuff like that, but a lot of games back then did. I think that the concept and practice of game design from a user-friendly standpoint has come a long way in the last 20 or 30 years. You know, back then, back then we didn't ask the question a lot of why. You know, that's a, that's a big game design question nowadays. Why am I jumping? Why am I picking this up? Why am I doing this? You know, and that leads to really great games that are that are the sum of all of its parts, if that makes sense. You know, you get these you get this you get this uh ability and you know the next boss you need to use it and then the last boss you have to use all your abilities and you know that 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 leads to more coherent game design that's the way we think about things nowadays but that wasn't always the case and a game like earthworm gym like the guy said that really worked to its benefit because you were always doing something different and i agree that was the fun part of it you know we went from side scrolling running gun to the spaceship level and the underwater levels were like you were behind your vehicle and having to stare at around obstacles. And it was just, it was this constant change from this to this, to this, to this, that kind of made it fun. Cause you never knew what was next, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah. So earthworm Jim gave way to earthworm Jim two a year later in 1995, shiny entertainment, basically the same team made earthworm Jim two it's same game, same premise, not the same levels, obviously. New levels, new mechanics, but it was by all means the same story, chasing down the princess and what have you. Oh, so Mario. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, it was fun. Earthworm Jim 2 was a lot of fun. Shortly after Earthworm Jim 2 was released, Shiny Entertainment was bought by Interplay, and the development team was put on other projects. So, when it came time to make a third Earthworm Jim game, a completely different team was selected to create Earthworm Jim 3D. Now, Earthworm Jim 3D was kind of a mess. It took three years to develop, leading many people to believe that it would never come out. In fact, it was it was uh, on the list of what we call vaporware. We've covered vaporware before in our Duke Nukem episode. People thought Duke Nukem would never come out because it took, what, 11 or 12 years to make? But this one here was three years, and it was a constant will-they-won't-they situation, so it was considered vaporware. People were convinced we'd never get a third Earthworm Jim game. 
And the problem realistically was the 3D. You know, Tenable and the team, they did the original game in 2D. And, and they weren't, honestly, they weren't even involved with Earth or Gem 3D. It was said that they started out as advisors and then they were all fired partially through the game. And then the development crew that was left just wasn't great at converting the 2D elements of the first game over to 3D. So the game was plagued with bugs. It had frame rate issues. It was also supposed to tie into an Earthworm Jim TV show that we'll talk about in a moment. But um, the show was already there and gone by the time this came out. So that didn't quite work out. Nice. So not surprisingly, it flopped. Now, there is a not-so-well-known fourth Earthworm Jim game uh, made by a completely different team, unrelated to all the other games, uh, developed at the same time as Earthworm Jim 3D, but this time designed for the Game Boy Color. As a Game Boy game, it was really simplified concept, and because of this, it's not looked at fondly because it has none of the style or charm of any of the Earthworm Jim games. I mean, what they what they do wrong with it? How is it so not good? They just simplified it. I mean, you, you, with Game Boy, you take away all the cool artwork and and level design and everything. And I mean, what do you have other than another generic running good platformer? You know. I guess yeah, Game Boy Color. I was thinking more advanced, which no, yeah, this is a little early for that. Okay, that's fair. This is Game Boy Color, the, and and I mean, you just. That was the whole concept of Earthworm Jim. It, it, the thing that made the game interesting was literally Earthworm Jim and the weird levels and the weird enemies and such that. And if you have to simplify them down for the sake of the console, you really don't have anything left that makes Earthworm Jim Earthworm Jim. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And after Earthworm Jim, the series kind of fizzled. You know, they tried to make a PlayStation Portable Earthworm Jim game circa 2006, 2007. It was worked on by some of the team uh, that worked on the original two games, the the people that worked for Shine Entertainment way back when. The game was supposedly about 80% complete, and there were journalists from different publications that got a hands-on preview to play it. But, unfortunately, this is about the time Interplay became part of Atari, and so Shine Entertainment was owned by Atari, and the mid-2000s is when Atari started to go under. When Atari started to become not financially solvent, they started to sell off all their development studios, including Shiny Entertainment. And this PSP Earthroom Gym game was lost in that mess. So it never came out. Wow. Yeah. Did not even know about all that. Yep. At one point, Interplay... Uh, announced uh, now Interplay as its own studio uh, developer, publisher, whatever it was at the time, announced uh, an Earthworm Jim 4 game. That's about it. <coughs> when they were asked sometime in 2011 if it was still in development, the answer was yes. And that was the last we ever heard of it. Well, damn. In 2019, it was announced that there'd be a new Earthworm Jim game. This one actually being Earthworm Jim 4, technically, was supposed to be released with the Intellivision Amico, which we've briefly talked about before. I think uh, somewhere in an episode, I don't remember what now, we talked very briefly about Tam, T- Tammy, Tommy Tallarico, 
who became like the owner or CEO of Intellivision, and Intellivision was developing a new console that wasn't definitely delayed during the pandemic. Well, I mean, at least they were working on it and it was in development for those eight years. They just take a really long time to get things done. Yeah, I guess. Not their fault that the Amico is indefinitely delayed. Yeah, we, we have no clue what's going on with the Amico. It's still indefinitely delayed. it's going to take 10 years to develop that. I mean, they're, they're a slow slow development team, but they get the job done and they do it well. Yeah, I don't know. No one knows what's going on with it. They started having supply issues like everyone else during the pandemic and then they delayed it and now it's officially indefinitely delayed that's the term we're using because there's been no updates so indubitably now the game did get re-released over the years when mobile yeah when mobile gaming became a thing earthworm gym one and two were released on the ios this was last two generations of consoles so when it was ported over to iOS, it was also ported over to the Wii Virtual Console, to the PlayStation Network, for the PS3, and Xbox Live. For the 360. And X for the 360, yes. And in 2010, it was remastered, and there is a decent remaster actually called Earthworm Jim HD, that was released for the PlayStation Network and Xbox Live for whatever generation we were on in 2010. I can't remember, to be honest with you. I had no idea about that either. Somehow yep. it slipped past me. So you can find Earthworm Jim HD on the online stores. That's pretty easy to find nowadays. And actually, in 2019, you know, there was that trend where they were all this, all the uh, manufacturers were releasing mini consoles. We had like the Super Nintendo, you know, mini, the NES mini. Um, and so on and so forth. There was the second Genesis Mini and the Earthworm Jim, the original Genesis version of Earthworm Jim, uh, was one of the games that was included on it. So if you got your hands on the second Genesis Mini, you have uh, a very good version. The SNES and Genesis versions, even though we got an HD remake, like those are still considered like the definitive versions of the game. All the ports that they did in the middle, it's on PC actually. You can go, it's on the Steam store. It's on GOG. You can find ports of 1 and 2. They're trash. Do not buy the PC ports. They are... They're trash. Read the reviews. Do yourself a favor. They're... they're don't do the ports. Find the old versions if you ever get a chance to play this and want to revisit it. Or just, you know, do what we do nowadays and go online and, and, and find a, a playthrough. Uh, so, Dave, I, I, it sounded to me like you may have had a bad experience with those ports yeah they're bad well i mean i'm just literally i'm not the only one go go uh go i don't know how i got them in time they may have come with a bundle or i bought them thinking i was gonna have a a big fantastic dose of nostalgia but um no they're really bad ports so i i I did try to go play it again and i couldn't and i i didn't try so i'm not gonna pretend like i played her from jim i couldn't and then i went back to the steam page and looked at the um looked at the reviews and they're pretty much all like i think it has 112 reviews or 115 reviews and it's mixed and all the ones that are actually there are like this is the god awful worst port i've ever played please go play this for super nintendo or genesis so damn yeah it happens to the best of us not if we don't try i know uh let's go back briefly to the television show there were two seasons 23 episodes 
Earthworm Jim, the television series. It was aired on the WB from 95 to 96. And that's about it. It's really only claim to fame is that um, Dan Castellaneta voiced Jim. Oh, hell yeah. That's awesome. Exactly. Uh, For those of you that are curious why Rob is excited, Dan Castellaneta is, yes, the voice of a lot of your favorite Simpsons characters. That's what he's famous for. But he did the voice of Earthworm Jim. Now, that's how Earthworm Jim did. Let's see how other people ended up. Dave Perry resigned from Shiny Entertainment as it was going through all that Atari bankruptcy mess. He founded a couple companies, GameConsultants.com and GameInvestors.com. Game Consultants, obviously, consultancy firm designed to help developers out. And Game Investors was a business-to-business company that was designed to help game developers find funding. He went that route. Uh, in 2008, he was the co-founder of Gaikai. Gaikai. I don't remember how to say it, but I do remember it. It was a game streaming service. And in 2012, that game streaming service was sold to Sony. And its technology is now the basis for their cloud-based PlayStation Plus streaming, whatever. So what's it called? Do you remember what Sony's is called? I don't. I, I, I've really not had PlayStations since the two. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Gaikai's technology is whatever Sony uses to do their PlayStation now or whatever their like cloud streaming stuff is. And yeah, he, Dave Perry left that and he currently works for a technology company that develops software to help influencers do what they do, which I guess is influence. Yeah, Dave, get with the times, gosh. And that brings us to Douglas Tenaple, Tenaple, fuckface. You're ten, gonna ten, ten nipples. I'm not going to promote any more of Tenaple's work. Uh, there's a reason for it. And that reason is he's a shithead of a person. In order to help you understand, I'm just going to read a section from his Wikipedia that's called Criticism and Controversy. I'm going to read it word for word for you. Tenable has attracted criticism for his remarks on the LGBTQ community and its issues, including vocal opposition to same-sex marriage and intentionally misgendering a transgender journalist who criticized the Earthworm Jim video game. Damn, what the fuck? He has dismissed his criticism and has written that transphobe, like homophobe, is a made-up word used to slander conservative people of faith with a mental condition, and is only used by SJWs. Tenable was involved in Comicsgate, which was a campaign against diversity and uh, progressivism in the superhero comics industry. Sean Gordon Murphy had drawn a cover for one of Tenable's works, Bigfoot Bill 2, which he withdrew and issued an apology after being made aware of Tenable's history of anti-LGBTQ comments. In response, Tenable tweeted that it is more important than ever that pro-family comic lovers support my work, stating his belief that LGBTQ people are waging a culture war against him. Wow. So he's He's a a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, so um, who cares? He made this game. He may have been a decent person then. He may not. We may not have asked those questions back then. He's a piece of shit. So whatever else he does is irrelevant. I included. I didn't want to include him, but I mean, I report on history. 
Sometimes history sucks. Sometimes history sucks. He sucks. So as far as we're concerned, he hasn't done anything other than Earthworm Jim. Honestly, dude, you'll never hear this. But if you hear this, what the fuck ever? Just let people live their life, man. It's not that hard. It's none of your damn business. It's just that simple. <sighs> All right. Well, Rob, that's uh, that's Earthworm Jim, man. That's Earthworm Jim. Yes, that, that it is. I really did enjoy playing the game. It was fun. It's kind of a bummer that it was created by such a dickhead, realistically, but there were a lot of other people who worked on this that are good people, and it deserves recognition for all of their hard work. Fuck Doug. So. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love it. I mean, I not, get... not Doug. He sucks, but. I, 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 you know, I don't. I, well, I've been on my soapbox before. I say I don't get political, but I've been on my soapbox before. But that's like that. That specifically is what angers me more than anything. Like, seriously, dude, just let people live their lives. Keep your nose out of it. It doesn't affect you. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, they're just jealous that no one will. That's probably true. Family people. value. Raging a culture war. We're not raging a culture war against you. We're raging a war against hatred and bigots and and you know people who mistreat other people that's it that's what the culture war is against it's about being a de- it's about waging war on people who can't treat others like decent human beings god culture war i could care less what you want you want to keep it in your own home fine but don't mistreat other people that's where the line's drawn agreed idiot idiot idiot, idiot. we covered a lot of cartoons though this is not the only one like i said in the past we did a whole episode on the teenage mutant ninja turtles we learned all about the mutant ninja turtles we learned about where they came from their creators what you know we we learned about the turtles themselves on route to the video games we did that about two months ago and that's an episode you can check out on our website which is www.memorycardlane.com also on memorycardlane.com you can find a calendar of upcoming events you can find um all of my show notes you can find a link to our discord to come interact with us mostly it just has my rocket league highlights which there's a lot of them these days i'm uh i'm kind of a big deal okay here we go hey wait 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 your rocket league highlights are on there too at least the ones from my point of view Yours could be on there too if you guys would listen to me and set it up properly, but you know, we don't. Man, I'm just not a glory hound, Dave. Well, it's automatic. If I like it, I hit a button and it just gets uploaded. I don't have to think about it. Mm. And I do it for cool shots, and I just happen to have a lot of cool shots these days. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. easy to get cool shots in practice. That's very true. You can also find links to our social media. I'm on various platforms bragging about myself as David is wrong. Rob, what are you doing on social media these days? I am on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, folks, each week we tell you a story about one game relevant. Sometimes it's a game. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a console. Either way, it's relevant to the current week of gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game what it took from the world as its, as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. One of the absolute best perks to teaching you, one of the reasons why we love doing it, is because we learn to. 
I, for instance, didn't know that Doug Tenaple was a grade A dick until I did my research, but here we are. So yeah, now, I, yeah. now, now I know to avoid anything that he does ever, ever again. Is that all you learned, though, Dave? Did you learn anything about the game itself? Or I did. Game? Well, as, as part of that commitment to you, we like to kind of talk about what we learned. So biggest takeaway. My biggest takeaway. Yeah, it's probably that Doug Tenable was a jerk. No, but realistically, I mean, I didn't know that I didn't know that this game was inspired by like Sonic and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I I didn't really know about the history that that Playmates basically said, hey, we want to make money like these people. What, how are we going to do it? And and Earthworm Jim came out of it. So that's kind of my takeaway for today. What about your your you uh, 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 you? What about you? Well, being that I was young when I started playing this game, I don't really remember a lot of the story and stuff. So to, to realize that it was a super suit and that it wasn't just like, I forgot about the one, the, the levels where you're actually a worm and not just in the suit. So I honestly thought it was just a, a worm that had a buff body. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. cool. That's awesome. So yeah, I got a little confused as, rewatching and i'm like oh shit maybe i haven't didn't beat it because if i don't remember that but yeah no uh as far as the development or anything though i do think it's kind of cool to know that uh it had like you said it's it came from the teenage mutant ninja turtles and things like that um and you know i actually didn't know at all about the tv show either yeah i I, I remember. I, I don't know if I've seen much of it, but I remember it. Like we said, there was a lot of cool c- cartoons in the mid-90s and 80s and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it would have been kind of cool to see that. I actually may see. I probably can find it somewhere, I'm sure. You probably can. You probably can. Well, that's that, folks. Rob, before I take it out of here, move on to next week. Is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do just want to take one quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means so much to us, and we hope that you get some joy in your day from listening to me and Dave babble on about video games. And if not, well, thanks for being here anyway. Also, listen to Dave shit on people who can't treat other people like decent human beings. Yeah, as is our right. Yeah. All right, well, on that note, next week... We're going to tell you the story about a console. We're moving on from games. It's going to be another console-based episode. Um, it's a console that really isn't very well known to most gamers. I don't at least think it's very well known to most gamers. But to those of us, those uh, video game historians, so to speak, it really does hold some significance. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the Fairchild Channel F. Uh, it holds a few special ones. It was the first console to use a microprocessor. First one to use cartridges and has a few other little perks to it too. So next week we're going to look at how the Fairchild came to be, who made it, some cool people, honestly, what it is exactly and why nobody knows about it. So, you know, join us again next week. We're going to take a look at the system that nobody knows on yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing. Skibidi-bap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-dap-d